Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Let me read for you as we begin our consideration of the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 1 and verses verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, help us now to take hold of your truth. Father, may it be our instructor. May it provide for us the wisdom and the insight that we need to understand who you are, who we are, why we are here, and what we are to be about. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we listen to the news, and we just, we shake our heads, we get choked, perhaps tears come to our eyes. And most people, instinctively, We understand that what took place out there in Colorado and what took place in many other places, I'm sure, throughout the world, that that's just not the way it's supposed to be. We we instinctively have a sense that that something that, that something something's wrong. Something is not right. Something is just just out of whack. Well, the only way to genuinely appreciate what is wrong is to first try to understand what is right. The only way to truly understand what has happened, what has gone wrong, is to first have some sense of how things were meant to be. And a lot of that is given to us here at the end of Genesis 1, all of Genesis 1, all of Genesis 2, our particular focus this morning, the end of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. 
Those of you who have been to my home or driven by our home, you realize that my, my wife loves flowers. Loves flowers. Now, I don't especially enjoy gardening. In fact, I don't enjoy gardening at all. But I appreciate, I appreciate greatly the beauty, the beauty, the majesty, the grandeur of all her hard work. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Just look there. In Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, this is what we're told. We're told that Eden, the Garden of Eden, we're told it was simply more than, more than simply productive of food. Now, it was productive of food, but we're told more. We're also told it was beautiful. That, that's really intriguing. We're told the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Pleasant to the sight. Now, why does that statement resonate with you? It was, it was beautiful. It was, it was magnificent. It, it was grand. It was pleasant to the sight. Why do you hear that and begin to imagine, at least in, in some limited way, what the Garden of Eden must have been like, what it must have looked like? Well, I want to suggest to you the reason you do that the reason you have that response when you hear the words that it was pleasant to the sight, that it was beautiful, that it was magnificent to behold, the reason you have that response is at least partially revealed here at the end of Genesis 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. Look at Genesis 1.25. Genesis 1.25 brings us to the middle of the sixth day of creation. God created the heavens, He created the earth, He created the vegetation that covers the earth, He created both the sea and the land animals as well as the birds that fly in the sky, and then He proclaimed everything that He had created good. Now we come to, the, now we come to verse 26. It, it's, you know, it's the middle of the sixth day. I don't, obviously, I don't know exactly when it was, but sometime during that sixth day, this is what we're told in Genesis 1.26. And this is, just, this is just an amazing statement to me. God, we're told, and I don't know any other way to phrase this except to say, God in consultation with Himself. God says, let us make man in our image... After our likeness. Now those plural pronouns are, they're intriguing. I mean, perhaps it would help. Just look ahead at verse 27. Look at verse 27. 
There we're told that man, and the word is singular, it's the word Adam. It doesn't refer to the individual Adam. It's the, it's the general word for man, and the word in Hebrew is Adam, and the word in Hebrew is singular. Man, singular, we're told in verse 27, is created plural. Verse 27, man was created by God, both male and Female. You look, I mean, look at the end of the second line of verse 27. This end of the second line of verse 27 still is using the singular pronoun him when it is referring to the man, singular, that God has created plural, that God has created male and female. Let us, God says in verse 26, Now, the only God, speaking of himself in the plural, God says back in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, I find at least an interesting parallel there. God makes man singular, makes man plural. Makes man singular, male and female. And likewise, God speaks of himself using plural pronouns. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what Moses understood as he wrote those words. I'm fairly confident of the fact that you understand far more than Moses understood even as he wrote those words. But it seems reasonable that God speaking through Moses, it seems reasonable that perhaps, perhaps what we have here is an initial indicator that God, the God, the one God, God singular, is a plurality of persons. Which, of course, is a truth that becomes fully revealed to us in the New Testament when we come to understand that God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God is Always the Father, always the Son, always the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always and completely God, and the Son is always and completely God, and the Father is always and completely God. I mean, how overwhelming is all that? You know, some of you remember that at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus will command his disciples to baptize in the name, singular, to baptize in the one name, singular, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's there's already an interesting parallel between God and ourselves. Now, obviously, there's a significant difference. I mean, as As mankind, you're either male or female. God, on the other hand, is always the Father, always the Son, always the Holy Spirit. But now, let me just interrupt this train of thought. (laughs) Because I don't think that's the focus or thrust of the end uh, here in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's very intriguing, but before we get lost in trying to comprehend, as we just sang in, in that wonderful hymn written by uh, Dr. Clowney, who was president of Westminster Theological Seminary uh, when I was um, 
a student back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the thrust here, uh, this, this teaching is uh, concerning God is, is, is simply um, beyond our ability to fully comprehend, to fully understand. But I think the focus here in these verses is upon the idea that, that mankind, male and female, that we, this is who you are. We are created in God's image. We are created in God's image. Look at, um, look at um, as, as we move ahead of here and try to understand what that means, um, look, at, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, 15, what does it mean to be created in, man's, in God's image? Well, in part, what it means for us to be created in God's image is that we are to do God's work here on earth. You know, we are His vice regents. We are His representatives here on this earth. Adam is told in Genesis 2.15 that he is to, to work and to take care of the garden. Adam is given the privilege and the responsibility of being the caretaker of God's creation. Well, if you stop and think about that, if, if being created in God's image, Adam is, is now given the responsibility as, as God's image bearer to, to be the caretaker of God's creation, the only way Adam is going to know how to do that is that God has created him with an ability to think God's thoughts after him. And that's who we are. We're created to be His image bearers. We're created to do the work that He has called us to do. We are created with the ability to think His thoughts after Him. And we are created by God to carry out all of this in community, in cooperation with one another. God created man male and female, and it is to them that He gives this great responsibility. That's who you are. Now, we're not going to get there this morning. Genesis chapter 3 is going to tell us that something horrible has gone wrong. Um, And we need to look at that, and we need to look at that in, in careful, um, careful detail. And we, we'll attempt to do that somewhat next week. But, but first of all, I want you to understand who you are. Now, when, when Linda and I were in, were in Cape Town visiting our daughter Ruth and her husband Gary and Lily, um, when, when, when we were in, in Cape Town, ca- carrying, uh, doing this, we, we, we went to a garden. What's the name of that garden? I can't hear you. Okay. We went to the garden in Cape, I, I can't, I forgot my hearing aids and 
she mouthed something, but I don't have any idea what she said. So, but we went to this garden in Cape Town covering thousands and thousands of acres. And I, I think there were thousands of people there walking the grounds with us, just enjoying the, uh, the wonder uh, and the startling beauty of this place, which was the result of what? It was the result, obviously, of God's creative activity, but it was also the result of who knows how many hundreds of people working together in community and cooperation to first lay out this garden and then to tend this garden and then to preserve this garden. And my wife was wondering if they needed any extra help. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure I saw her stoop down and pull two or three weeds. So, but here it is. And here's the point. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Why do we, as Chattanoogans, why do we take such delight in the recovery of our city and of our riverfront? Why do we do that? Why do we look at all of that? I was able to look at that on Friday evening. Why do we look at all of that and go, this is just so magnificent. It's just so beautiful. It's just so pleasant to look at. How can we not understand that for us to have that response is a clue that there's something special about us. We've got a fairly, we've got a nice sized backyard and we've fenced off probably two thirds of that backyard so that our dog can roam freely and safely. That portion of our backyard is a mess. And my dog doesn't care. And once in a while we let the dog out the front yard and into the side yard where all of Linda's beautiful gardens are to be found. She still doesn't care. It doesn't make any difference to Lizzie if she's in the front yard or if she's in the backyard. And the backyard's covered with weeds and the backyard's got big brown patches. And most of them are her fault with holes that she's dug everywhere. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. She's never come in the house, look at me, and gone, you seen that backyard? She doesn't care. Why? Now, I know some of us care more than others, but why within almost every one of us is there some sense of the beautiful? Some sense that this is this is gorgeous. This is this is magnificent. And sometimes it's a natural landscape. Sometimes it's produced by the work of many hands. 
And yet there's always somewhat of a similar response. Why? Because that's who we are. We were created to produce and to maintain that which is beautiful, that which is magnificent. And yet somehow or other, we've reached the place where who knows how many believe that we occupy a position on some evolutionary scale that's just a little bit above my dog, Lizzie. That simply on the surface of it is silly. There is no comparison between who we are. Why? Because God created the heavens and the earth. And He separated the waters from the sky. And He separated the dry land from the waters. And He covered the dry land with vegetation. And He filled the sky with birds and the ocean with sea creatures. And He covered the land with animals. And then, and only then, did God create man, male and female, create us in His own image. Now let me press on here. There, there's a lot of things we can do here. I'm going to try over the next many weeks to just sort of work our way through the unfolding of all of God's covenant purposes. So I'm not going to be able to deal with all the details of everything we're told in this passage. And so I am going to uh, pick out those points that I want to draw your attention to. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. On the, on the seventh day, we're told that God rests. Having completed His initial acts of creation, God rests from His creative activity. That doesn't mean that somehow He's a clockmaker and having created the clock, He winds it up and then He steps out of the picture and just lets the clock run on its own. It means He's completed the initial acts of creation and now He rests. And part of the reason He rests is to give to us this pattern of one day in seven. Of one day in seven, we are free to rest from our labors. We are free to worship Him and pursue recreational activities. Isn't that an interesting word? Recreational. Recreational activities that renew both our energy and our focus. Uh, historically, it's kind of interesting, by the way, uh, and at least I think it's interesting and therefore... Uh, you will find this interesting. Um, it, it's interesting that there have been attempts to get away from that pattern of, of six days of labor and one day of rest. Do you know that during the French Revolution, they tried to eradicate that? They tried to come up with a 10-day week? And, and other cultures have tried similar things, and it never works. 
It never works. And eventually and inevitably, uh, almost every culture that has, has tried uh, returns to this pattern of six days of labor and one day of rest. D- did you ever stop to think, where would that come from? Why are there seven days in a week? Why is it six days of work and one day of rest? Who made that up? Well, God made that up. That's His God-given pattern. And by the way, that also indicates that labor is not a curse. God calls, calls us to our labor long before the curse takes place. Labor is, is a blessing from God to be able to work at our jobs and to provide for our families. That's a gift and that's a blessing from God. I've told some of you this story before. Some of you I've never told this story to. So though for those of you who have heard this before, just pretend you haven't. You know, my father worked for United States Steel. Um, which is why I grew up in New Jersey eating grits, cornbread, and black-eyed peas. Because he had to go north to find work, and he worked in the steel mills. And then he contracted a, a disease, and he had to step down from the job, and he was uh, medically retired. Uh, and on the last day that he worked at U.S. Steel, as he was living, lo- leaving the plant for the last time, he went by the personnel office, and asked if he could speak to the, uh, I guess what we would call today, the Director of Human Resources. I'm not sure that was the title back then, but that's who he asked to talk to. And, and I don't know what this guy expected, because Dad said he acted a little nervous. And Dad went in, sat down, and said, I don't know who else to do this with, but i got to tell somebody thank you. i got to tell somebody thank you for providing for me for 25 years this wonderful job by which I've been able to feed and clothe and house and educate my children. He was a steel worker. I worked in the steel mills. It's not a good place to work. At least, I didn't find it a good place to work. My dad, who grew up with nothing, thought it was a great place to work. And he wanted to tell somebody, thank you. And you know what the, the HR director told him. Nobody else has ever done this. Nobody else on their last day of work has ever come in here just for the purpose of saying thank you. It's who we are. That's who we are. Called by God to work at our tasks, whatever that task might be. By God's blessing to provide for our families. To provide their genuine needs. Now I want to show you something else here. Look at Genesis 2. Look at verse 4. 
In Genesis 2, verse 4, we're told, you see it, Genesis 2, verse 4, we're told that what we're about to read, this is how it's, this, this is how it's described. It's described in this fashion. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, honestly, if you've never noticed this, you you need to mark this because you need to take note of this every time you read Genesis. See that in Genesis 2-4? That is a formula. Those words provide us with a formula that is used repeatedly throughout Genesis. Look at, now I'm going to do this quickly. So just listen or try to follow Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, just mark these down. Genesis 5-1. What are we told? Genesis 5, 1 tells us that we, we are now being introduced to the history of Adam's immediate descendants. Genesis 6, verse 9. Genesis 6, verse 9. Same language. This is the story of Noah. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. This is the story of Noah's sons. Genesis 11, verse 27. Genesis 11, verse 27, this is the story of Terah, the father of Abraham. Genesis 25, verse 12. Genesis 25, verse 12, this is the story of Ishmael's descendants. Genesis 25, verse 19. Chapter 25, verse 19, these are the story of Isaac's sons. Genesis 36, verse 1, these are the story of Esau's children. Genesis 37, verse 2, these are the stories of Jacob's family. Now, why in the world do I take the time to show you that? Because it's the pattern of Genesis. It's the pattern that Moses, led by the Lord, inspired by God, it's the pattern, it's the structure that Moses gives to these books. And what does it say to us? It says to us, these are the historical accounts of Jacob and of Esau and of Isaac and of Ishmael and of Abraham and of Noah and of Adam and of the creation. The historicity of Abraham tied to the historicity of Joseph Tied to the historicity of Adam, to the historicity of the creation. It's an amazing thing to behold. Furthermore, I just want you to note, look at chapter 2, verse 4 again. I want you to see this. Because there's suddenly a change. There's a change. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, is one story of creation given to us in somewhat of a poetic form, historical account, but written somewhat in a poetic form. Nothing wrong with that. In, you know, in, in Judges chapters 4 and 5, we have the, the story of Deborah and, and Barak's victory. And, and Judges uh, chapter uh, 4 is a a prosaic account in Judges chapter uh, 5, or I should say Joshua chapter 5, which is Judges. Judges chapter 5 
Judges chapter 4 is a prosaic account of that victory. Judges chapter 5 is a poetic account of that victory, telling the same history, just in different forms. Well, we have the same sort of thing here in Genesis, but now another change takes place there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. No longer is it simply in the beginning God. See what it is? Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Now it is the Lord God. Lord, there in your English translation, written in capital letters. Yahweh. God, as He creates, as we now focus upon the creation of man, as we focus upon the creation of man, which is the focus in most of these verses from chapter, in chapter 2, verse 4 to the end of that chapter, as we focus upon the creation of man, now we are told the personal name of the Creator. And His name is Yahweh. Now why is that important? Who's the audience? I told you this last week. I'm going to pass out a piece of paper so you can answer this question. Who's the audience? It's the children of Israel. Encamped in the wilderness having been delivered by God out of Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, led into the wilderness, on their way to the Promised Land, there in the wilderness, who is the God who brought them out of Egypt? Who is the God who appears in the burning bush, who calls upon Moses to go back to Egypt and to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go? Yahweh. I am who I am. Yahweh. Now here, as Moses tells the story, which begins to particularly focus upon Adam and then upon Eve, Moses, led by the Lord, speaks of the fact that this God, this Creator of heaven and earth, this Creator of all that is, this Creator of all that is good, this Creator of all that He declares at the end of Genesis 1 to be very good, His name is Yahweh. Not just a God. Not just any God. He is the one and only God. He is the God who delivers His people out of Egypt and brings them in to the promised land. We're running out of time here and I'm not going to finish this sermon. Uh, It's fine. We'll carry on here next week. But I want you to see one more thing. Look at verses 10 through 14 of Genesis chapter 2. Let me read this for you. This is one of those passages where you just kind of go, whoa. Just look at this passage. Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided. It became four rivers. Name of the first is Pishon. Can't locate it on a map. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Not sure where Havilah is. 
I don't know. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. I don't even know what Delium is. The name of the second river is Gihon or Gihon or Jihon or something Han. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Can't find it. I don't know where that is. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Tigris and the Euphrates and a reference to Assyria. And suddenly we're going, you know, this is not a story about a time long, long ago in a land far, far away. This is a story about a garden located, I'm not exactly precisely sure where, but somehow or other its location is tied to a land called Assyria. We know that land, two rivers called the Euphrates and the Tigris, and we know those two rivers. I don't know the rest of those details, but I'm given enough here to go, huh, I think I have, you know, I think I can come within 300 miles maybe of Precisely where the, you know, three, within 300 miles precisely, you know, where the, uh, the Garden of Eden perhaps was in fact located. Why am I telling you that? Again, because the whole structure of the book of Genesis is to say to us, this is history. And the naming of Yahweh in Genesis chapter 2 is to say to that original audience as well as to you and me, the Creator God is Yahweh. And who is Yahweh? Next week, as we look at Genesis 3, we'll go back and look at a few things in Genesis 2 and then move into Genesis 3. As we make that transition... we're going to discover that we're in an awful mess. So let's go to the Old Testament. In a a more limited fashion, but in a way in which you just can't miss the comparisons. That original audience to which Genesis was written, those people knew what it was to be in a mess. They had been battered, bruised, despised, beaten slaves in Egypt. And God raised up for them a deliverer. And Yahweh brought them out of Egypt across the Red Sea into the wilderness where He would provide for their every need until He would bring them safely into the promised land despite all of their sins and their shortcomings. Let me tell you something. Next week we'll understand why life is not the way it should be. But look at the front of your bulletin. Look at the front of your bulletin. 
Look at the front of your bulletin. That's the window above the narthex. We're talking about high noon on that window. Did you see that one o'clock? See that man's foot crushing the serpent beneath his feet? That's our deliverance. Why do we need delivering? Because of what we're told in Genesis 3. And it's not a good story. But in Genesis 3, we're also promised a deliverer. A deliverer who would bring us out of the land of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. So that even now, in a world where so many things are just not what they should be, and yet we have this, this hint, this strong intuition of how things ought to be. But in this world where things are not what they should be, we have the promise of this Deliverer who even now blesses us with the supernatural gifts of His joy and of His peace, even in the midst of the most difficult and trying of circumstances. And when we strive in the strength that He provides to be the people He created us to be, to live our lives to His glory, for His honor, to His praise, in service to others, to be the image bearers that He would want us to be, to be like Christ, empowered and strengthened and enabled by the Holy Spirit who dwells with Him because He is our Savior and our Lord and our King. We gain that foretaste of that eternal glory which is yet to come. When we will finally cross that final Jordan and enter once and for all time the promised land. <laughs> well, let's pray. So Lord, teach us. Impress these things upon us. Help us to understand who we are and whose we are. Help us, O oh God, to recognize the privilege as well as the responsibility that is ours. To strive to live as your image bearers, confident of the fact that you will supply what we need to accomplish those tasks that you set before us. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus, our Deliverer, our Savior, our Lord, our King, and our Creator. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.